of 5, 7 through 12, and Revelation 19, verse 1 through 16. theme that holds these together is how God sets a table for his people in light of the victory that he promises them. Start with Genesis 14, beginning at verse 13. The word of the Lord. Abraham is seeking to rescue his nephew, Lot. And now the Lord provides a way for him to do that. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who is living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anner. These were the allies of Abraham. When Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and he also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the woman and the people. After his return from the defeat of Cherdolaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Let's turn to Joshua 5, starting at verse 7. They've just entered the land. And before they attack, they have to sanctify themselves to God. Starting at verse 7, the word of the Lord. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so they called the name of the pl- and so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month in the evening evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased that day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, and they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. And finally, Revelation 19, and we'll read the first 16 verses.
Revelation 19, the word of the Lord. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So far. Let's sing together now number... Psalm 149, Psalm 149. Our text for today is Revelation 19, verse 7 to 9. Let's just read that again. Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Beloved in the Lord, the Christian's 
race. The Christian life is often long and hard, and things can look very grim. It's easy to turn our lives as Christians into something that's overly serious, very pessimistic. We focus on the commands to persevere, the commands to strive against our sin and the old man. And in some sense, this is right. These are important matters. These are scriptural commands. We're called to mortify our sin. We're at war against the flesh and the world and the devil. But it's only part of the story. This is only part of what it means to be a Christian. After all, We know that we stand in grace, as the Apostle Paul will often say. And this, this standing, is what gives us strength to overcome all those trials, all those temptations. You see, we already now participate in the great joy of salvation. Scripture reveals to us that we stand in an overwhelming, an indescribable grace. Just as the scripture commands us to lead a life of repentance and of mortification, so the scripture also commands to live a life of joy and feasting. We can think of Paul's words, Rejoice, I say. Again, I say, rejoice. It's a pattern we see in Scripture. From fasting to feasting, from repentance to salvation, from a church hard-pressed to a church victorious. Sunday, if anything, is the day of the feast. It's the day of Christ's resurrection. There's a moment of repentance in our prayers, but the greater part of the service is the joy of responding to Christ's word. We enjoy communion with him and his Father and his Holy Spirit. We hear his revelation that he's given us in Christ. We have the privilege of knowing God. If it's the Lord's Supper Sunday, we follow that with a feast of the Lamb where we declare his victory by eating with him. In our text today, we have a vision of that wedding feast. The bride is presented to the Lamb. And the Lamb, through John, blesses those who are invited to the wedding feast. I bring you the word of the Lord today under the theme, Rejoice! The marriage feast is here. We're going to see the presentation of the bride, the gift of white clothing, and finally the invitation of the lamb. The church of God is the speaker of the words of our text. They speak in a divine liturgy that's celebrating the fall of Babylon. 
and our text, verses 7 to 9, particularly verse 7 and 8, is the culmination of that liturgy where the bride is presented before the Lord, holy and white and pure. You see, the great enemy has been destroyed. Now the bride may be revealed. The Apostle John has seen the fall of Babylon in chapter 17, and he's observed the mourning of the nations in chapter 18 of Revelation. Now, in in stark contrast to the wailing of the nations, heaven is rejoicing over the fall of Babylon. What is Babylon? Babylon is the prototypical, the central, wicked city in the scripture. The name of Babylon goes right back to the city of Babel. Here man sought another way to reach God, another way to look for God, other than, other than the way that he had taught them. When John speaks of Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18, he's not talking about Rome. At certain points of history, the city of Rome would become like the Babylon he's speaking here. But ultimately, he's not talking about Rome. John's talking about the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has rejected Christ She's whored with the nations of the world rather than looking to her proper husband, Jesus Christ. She left the God who bought her and she sought after other husbands, the kings and the princes of this world. Like the ancient people of the Tower of Babel, she sought to find her own way to God. Instead of accepting Christ, she's tried to follow God by keeping all the regulations that he had given her in the law. Regulations that we know from Colossians 2 had been nailed to the cross of Christ. And so the earthly Jerusalem had become... a wife who practiced abominations. She defended her abominations by hunting down and killing the saints of God. She had become the scarlet prostitute we read of in chapter 17, drunk on the blood of the saints. And now God has paid her back. In the words of the multitude that sings before the throne of God, he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of the saints. Jesus has kept his promise to those who were true to him. The Jerusalem that he preached to, the Jerusalem that he wept over, he has now destroyed He has come upon clouds of judgment, and through the Roman army, he has avenged the blood of his holy ones. Our text is the final response of a five-fold liturgy. We begin with a song sung by all the saints. Once this is done, the saints all lift up their voices again. 
This time, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, symbols of the administration of the old covenant, respond with a solemn amen, hallelujah. Then a voice calls out of heaven, the worship leader, and he calls upon the people to respond. And then we have again the entire multitude of the church cry out, we're told, with the sound of mighty peals of thunder, shouting praise to God and calling out to one another to rejoice and exalt and give him glory. Why? Because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. We turn from rejoicing over the destruction of our enemies to glorying in the church that Christ is gathering for himself. We move from the announcement that the enemies of God are defeated to a victory feast. By destroying the city of Jerusalem, Jesus has ushered in his new kingdom. In a sense, it began when Jesus began to announce to the people that the kingdom of God is near. In a sense, it began when Jesus was was raised from the dead. In a sense, it began when Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God and he sent out his spirit. And now that kingdom is confirmed when Jesus comes in judgment on Jerusalem. Now that the false bride, the whore, is removed, the bride of Christ, the church, may be more fully revealed. This 40-year period, that is from Christ's resurrection to the fall of Jerusalem, is a picture of what is happening now. From the ascension of Christ to his final coming, we wait for the pure bride, which will be revealed at the end of history. In the meantime, the church, she continues to be persecuted. She continues to have her triumphs, moments when God comes in judgment on her enemies. She continues to present herself before God and rejoice in his presence. What John reveals here is the first triumph of the kingdom of God. From the ascension of Jesus to the fall of Jerusalem, the church has been attacked viciously by the Jews. We can read about that in the book of Acts. God's own people rejected Jesus, and now they're rejecting his church. The Jews have a second chance to repent of their sins and join the new kingdom of God. Instead, they oppress God's people. They attempt to wipe out this new work of God. Now they're destroyed, and God's work is confirmed. And so it will be at the end of history. Any nation that exalts itself against God's people and does not repent will join this first harlot. Therefore, we rejoice just as we rejoice in the work that God did in destroying Satan, we rejoice as God continues to accomplish his work in history. We rejoice in the fact that God has delivered us and is delivering us from the attacks of tyrants 
and false prophets. We can delight in the fact that so long ago God rescued his church and vindicated them in the face of their Jewish accusers. This scene that plays before our eyes gives us a very important perspective. We're not looking for the triumph of the nations upon this earth. We look for the triumph of the kingdom of God. To look for the triumph in nations is to trust in the weapons of this world. No, we trust In that one weapon, that one sword, the word of God. In the past, it's true, Canada, the United States, Europe have all done some good for that kingdom. And they still do some good for that kingdom today by keeping the peace. But our interests as Christians are not ultimately in the affairs of these nations. Our interests are not in preserving the Canadian way of life, the benefits of which you all enjoy. Our interest is in preserving and promoting the kingdom of God. It's for the sake of that kingdom we pursue the good of the countries we live in. Jews who had become Christians had to leave Jerusalem, the temple, their people, Their own people attacked them and tried to kill them. The peoples that do not serve the interest of this kingdom will in the end be destroyed. God's not on the side of any nation. He's with the church, which is faithful to him, wherever that may be found. Our desire to preserve the bride of Christ takes precedent over every other love we have, except for our love for the groom, our Lord Jesus Christ. As members of the bride, you're called to prepare yourself for presentation before Christ as the kingdom is more and more fully revealed. The bride in our passage has made herself ready. She knows she's about to be presented, and she's ready for that. She's prepared herself for presentation by clothing herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Now we're told that that clothing of the bride is the righteous deeds of the saint. saints. This is the way the bride prepares herself in presenting herself to her groom. She does those righteous deeds which Paul tells us in Ephesians she was foreordained to do. This doesn't mean we need to add righteous deeds to the salvation God gives us in order that we might be saved or in order that we might be presentable to our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know that? It's because of those very important words. It was granted to her. The bride is given these clothes which are her righteous deeds. These are the deeds that come from the Spirit's work in our hearts. This is the Spirit clothing the bride in glory. 
by walking in the Spirit, by doing the works that come from faith, the bride had made herself ready. In the 40 years between Christ's death and his judgment upon Jerusalem, the bride had remained true to her Lord, despite the attacks of the Jews and later the Romans as well. This is an important theme in the book of Revelation. The reward that comes to the overcomers or the victors. We see this in the letters to the churches. He in the letters to the churches that God promises a reward for repentance and renewal. He promises punishment if they continue to deny their Lord. The bride in Revelation 19 has overcome. She's remained faithful through the attacks of the beast and the harlot and the dragon. This first overcoming is an encouragement to us today. We're called to prepare ourselves for the final presentation of the bride, where we will meet our Lord in the flesh. Let's not be lazy then in pursuing the things of God. Brothers and sisters, we we stand in grace. Let's walk in the Spirit, do the work of love. Encourage one another in in following our Lord and Savior. Let your light shine so the world may see your good works and praise God for them. And these good works don't need to be anything particularly amazing. These good works begin in your day-to-day faithful walk. Children... It's your everyday kindness to your siblings and your everyday obedience to your parents. Parents, it's your everyday training of your children, fulfilling your vows to raise them as Christians, as young men and women who love and serve their Holy Savior and Lord. People of God, it's your everyday gentleness and your justice, your fairness which you're called to show to all men. It's in these simple things where good works begin. As we know, he who is faithful in the little things will also be faithful in the greater things. Through the perfecting work of Christ, God will clothe you in these righteous deeds so that you may be presented before him faultless and blameless. When you do good works, you're beautifying, glorifying the bride of Christ. Now, we need to be careful here. These works in no way provide a basis for fellowship with the Lord. Christ's sacrifice is the basis that allows us to fellowship with our Father. This is by means of our faith. These works are proofs of our faith, a glorifying of the work that God has done for us. We might say they're the justification of our justification. So that as James says, the word of God in accounting us righteous is fulfilled. Now this call to prove our justification shouldn't feel like a burden to us. We should count it all joy. 
Look at what God has given to us. Let's glorify him through our good works. For example, when you're married to someone, it's not necessarily a chore to tell your spouse that you love him or that you think she is beautiful. Those things should be a joy to do. Further, this call is a comfort to us. It gives us value, value in what we are doing as we live on this earth. It's not wasted value as we struggle with sin. God values our works. He values what we do. We know our works are full full of sin, and we know they don't really add anything to our salvation. And God knows that too. But he's happy to see that we're laboring for him. He's happy to see that we're suffering for his sake. And this gives meaning to your struggles to be faithful in him. He will reward you. He will use those works which he gave to you to dress you in a glorious robe. Be amazed then at the grace of God. You you know you're a sinner. You know that you stray. Too often you despise the grace of God in your life. But you're God. He's working on you. You're his workmanship. He's covered you with his blood so that already now you're invited to his wedding feast. Verse 9 demonstrates a common rhetorical structure in the book of Revelation. We see a vision, and this is followed by an application usually in the form of a beatitude, just like those beatitudes that Christ gave in Matthew 5. Blessed are you. You are blessed. Those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb are blessed. That means you're in a state of blessedness, a state of happiness. Already now, if you're invited to that marriage supper. Congregation, you have an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It belongs to those who are in fellowship with Christ, to those who believe in Christ. It belongs to those who join in our remembrance in the Lord's Supper. We look forward to that final supper, and we already enjoy that supper now. In the marriage supper of the Lamb, we rejoice in the victory that Christ has accomplished in history. And we look forward in certainty to the fact that we'll enjoy that final victory. We read from two passages in the Old Testament that demonstrate eating in victory and eating in hope of victory. Abraham ate bread and wine from the high priest Melchizedek upon defeating five armies and rescuing his relative Lot. 
Here he's celebrating in the victory that God has given him over his enemies. This is what the church does in this text. The feast that follows the triumph of the Lamb. God has irrevocably defeated his enemies. We now approach the table of the Lord in in the certainty of Christ's victory. We approach the table in the certainty that we share in the resurrection of Christ. In those white robes that Christ and his spirit have provided for us. We approach as overcomers who are called to overcome. For we also read of a table being spread before the battle. The recently circumcised Israelites in Joshua enjoy a Passover meal in the very site of the city of Jericho. The feast comes before the battle. They're confident in their victory. Our text also has this truth embedded into it. Immediately after the wedding feast is revealed, we have a vision of Jesus prepared for war, prepared with his saints to conquer the earth. The feast given reveals that the continued battle is certain. Its end is certain. He will win. We know from 1 Corinthians 11 that in the Lord's Supper we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we feast with Jesus on the Lord's day, we proclaim the victory that he accomplished on that cross. In the midst of a world that is full of misery. In the midst of the world that hates faithful Christians. Whether it's the attacks of the secular West or the attacks of Islam in the East. We taste and see that the Lord is good. We feast like conquerors in the midst of a land that hates God. That's how certain we are in the eventual victory of Christ. It's all done in Christ's work, in Christ's victory, congregation of Christ. We need the fasting. We need the repentance, the struggle, the fear and trembling. But it all looks toward the feast. This feast we're already able to enjoy on the Lord's Day. Not only on Lord's Supper Sundays, but also in the living word that we feed upon every Sunday. This feast gives us confidence in our salvation. It gives us confidence in doing good works so that we may give joy and glory to our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. It gives us confidence as we stand with Jesus, ready to conquer by the sword, the word of God that comes out of his mouth. Rejoice, people of God, for the marriage feast of the Lamb has come. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's sing together hymn 73, verses 1, 3, and 4.